I got this t-shirt, right? Okay. I was going to wear it today. My wife told me she would be embarrassed. It says, world's greatest dad. Just uh, in case any of you guys were wondering, you're looking at him. I also have another one that says, number one dad. Uh, now, I was thinking about it, and, uh, you know, it was probably a little bit premature for me to be dubbed world's greatest dad at the time when I received that shirt, because I had been a dad for, like, a couple weeks. And, you know, what I've learned after a couple of years of being a dad is that, uh, you know, at, at a couple weeks old, it doesn't take a whole lot to be a great dad, like to be the number one dad. It's really, it turns out that it's as they get older that being a dad gets more complicated and it gets harder. So, uh, you know, I still wear the shirt just because, you know, if it's given to me, I'm going to own it and I'm going to claim it and just, you know, be loud and proud. But the fact is, I, I do think it was probably a little bit premature for me to be dubbed world's greatest dad or even number one dad. Um, you know, one of the greatest, most well-known stories, uh, iconic stories in the Bible is a story that Jesus told about a father who had a rocky relationship with one of his sons. And the, the story is the story of the prodigal son. Most of us know it. It's so familiar that it's worked its way into our common knowledge, our common vernacular. People who don't even go to church know this story. We know the term prodigal. We understand what that means. And the story that Jesus told is the story of a father who loved his son, but in return for the love that he showed his son, the son acted towards him in a way that was very hurtful. And the son came one day and, and asked his dad to give him his share of the inheritance because he was leaving and he didn't ever plan to see him again. Right, this would be like if one of your kids, for you parents or a spouse for you who are married, would come up to you and say, hey, you know that insurance policy you have on your life, right? Like, how much is that? I, I'd really like to know. And maybe I could just get that amount from you now because I don't plan on ever seeing you again. The son was basically saying, Dad, I don't want a relationship with you. I only want your money. I, don't, I wouldn't even care if you were dead. In fact, I kind of wish you were dead. That way I could have your money and I'd never have to see you again. You, you can understand why that would be very hurtful. And this father, although he loved his son, in return from his son, the son responded only selfishly and very hurtfully, and he rejected his father. You know, being a parent, as many of you know, can bring some of the greatest joys. We all know that. But, you know, the other side of the coin is that being a parent also opens you up to some of the deepest pains that you can ever experience in life. And we've been studying the life of David here in 2 Samuel. David was a man who God called a man after my own heart. He said, that guy is like me in the sense that he has my heart. But yet, we look at David, and in so many areas of his life, he was exemplary, and he shows us what it looks like to have a heart for God. But there was one area of his life where he really did fail the most, and that was in his family life, as a father and as a husband. I guess you could say that David was not the world's greatest dad, right? I assume he didn't have the t-shirt, uh, but he was certainly not the world's greatest. He shouldn't even wear the t-shirt if he had it because he was not the world's greatest dad. And his kids did not grow up to be the world's greatest kids. And as we've been studying here in 2 Samuel chapters uh, you know, 13 through 14, the past two weeks, we've seen that David's family is just a big dysfunctional mess, right? As far as dysfunctional families go, they don't even put the fun in dysfunctional because there was no fun being had by these people. It was a mess. Here, here's what happened over the last couple of chapters. We saw that one of his sons raped one of his daughters 
And then one of his other sons murdered the son that raped the daughter. I mean, it's just bad news all around. And yet David stood by throughout all of this and did nothing. No discipline, no correction, no intervention whatsoever. He just kind of stood by and said, wow, that was a bummer. That was basically all he did. And even though David wasn't the world's greatest dad, we all know that, but there's one thing we must say for the man as a father. If there's one credit we can give him, it's this, that he at least loved his kids. He did love his kids. Now, the ways that he expressed that love were often unhealthy and, and somewhat twisted, but he did love his kids. We've got to give him that. But like in the story of the prodigal son, what we see here in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel, we're going to see that in return for his love for his son, David is going to receive hurt and pain and rejection. This is going to be the greatest trial of David's life. And that's actually a very uh, interesting thing to think about, that this is going to be the greatest trial of David's life because David has faced quite a lot of trials in his life, hasn't he? Right? He, he's faced wild animals out in the wilderness. He stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Goliath the giant. He had spears thrown at his head. He's been chased through the wilderness by an entire army of people. But this trial is going to be the hardest. This is going to be the hardest because this one is different. Because this one is personal. David is going to experience betrayal from his own son. Now, how many of you know what it feels like to be betrayed? Probably most of us on some level. Uh, betrayed by someone you love, someone you trust. How many of you know what it feels like to show someone nothing but love and kindness and in return receive only hurt and rejection? One author described the feeling of betrayal in this way. I thought this was actually so right on and astute. Uh, the author said this. She said, Betrayal, it was like being left alone in the desert at dusk without warmth or without water or warmth. It left your mouth dry and your will broken. It sapped your tears and made you hollow. I don't know if you've ever felt that hollow feeling. I have, and I think she's got it right on. It's that hollowness. One author said this, I would rather my enemy's sword pierce my heart than my friend's dagger stab me in the back. And you see, that is actually the thing that hurts so much about betrayal is that betrayal never comes from your enemies. It would be a lot easier to accept if it came from your enemies. But that's what hurts so much about betrayal. Uh, betrayal never comes from your enemies because by definition, in order for betrayal to happen, there has to be love. There has to be trust. So let's take a look at this story as we see David's betrayal by his son. I call this the other prodigal son. Verse 1 of chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. The chapter begins, after this. Now, after what? Now, just to get you caught up very briefly on what we've been studying the last couple weeks, Absalom is David's son. And Absalom is the son who murdered David's other son because that son raped David's daughter. And the penalty, though, for murder in Israel was death. It was execution. So if you murdered your brother, this guy did, he, by law, should be put to death. And so to avoid prosecution, he runs away. He becomes a fugitive, this guy Absalom. He runs away to the country of Geshur, and he lived there 
as a fugitive for three years in hiding because he knows he can't return to Israel because he'll be prosecuted and put to death. And so during this time, though, the Absalom's away in the land of Geshur, uh, you know, as a fugitive, we read that David mourned and wept over Absalom every single day. He wanted so badly to have his son back. He wanted to be reunited with him. David loved Absalom, even though Absalom had done terrible things. I think that's something that as a parent you understand. My kid might do terrible things, but I can't stop loving them, right? David, also, he's willing to forgive Absalom, and he longs to see him again. He longs to embrace him. He longs to tell him that everything is forgiven, and he desires for their relationship to be restored to what it once was. And so after three years of Absalom being in exile there in Geshur, David makes a special exception for Absalom. David did this a lot with his kids. He indulged them. He made exceptions for them. He granted Absalom immunity, and he let him come to Israel. And so Absalom returns to Jerusalem, very much like the prodigal son returning home, and David embraces him, just like the father in the prodigal son story, and forgives him and restores him. But you see, there's a really big difference between Absalom and the prodigal son in Jesus' story. You see, the the prodigal son in Jesus' story in Luke chapter 15, that son came to an acute awareness of his sin. He came to an awareness of his sin that led him to a place, a state of brokenness and humility, which caused him to come to the Father and ask for forgiveness and grace. And he didn't have any sense of, this is what you owe me, or this is what I deserve. He was like, I deserve nothing if you would only take me back just by your grace. And so as a result of that brokenness over sin, and then receiving the kindness or the grace of the Father, which he knew for a fact that he did not deserve, the prodigal son, as a result of those things, was a changed man. He was transformed through brokenness and through grace. But Absalom... He never got to that place of brokenness over his sin. Absalom never came to the place of humility and repentance. You see, Absalom never actually said he was sorry, did he? He's just kind of been brought back and restored, but he's never apologized, right? And for that reason, Absalom has no appreciation for the grace that he's receiving from his father. And because of that, nothing has changed in Absalom's heart. No transformation has changed, taken place. He's not a different man. He's the exact same person he was with the exact same heart and exact same thinking that he was before all of this happened. And I would ask the question, how about you? How about us? Have you come to the place of brokenness? The awareness of your sin that leads you to humble repentance before God. You will not be transformed by the knowledge of the the grace of God towards you until you understand just how deeply you need that grace and how great that grace really is. You won't understand that until you come to that place of awareness and brokenness over your sin. And so here's Absalom. He got away with murder. He never actually repented of it. His dad brought him home and restored him to his position as prince. And Absalom didn't even ever say that he was sorry for what he had done. And so look at what Absalom does now. We see here in verse 1. Absalom got himself a chariot and some horses and 50 men to run before your before his chariot and horses. Now that tells us a lot about Absalom. You know why? Because think about it. What do you use a chariot and horses for? We use it for getting places fast, right? But if you got 50 guys running in front of you everywhere you go, you're not getting anywhere very fast. So this really wasn't for speed. 
uh, this chariot was to get noticed, right? It was pretty much like to show everybody that he's a big deal. That he's like a parade's coming to town every time he rolls up in his chariot with his horses and his 50 men, his big posse, right? It's all about image. And we'll continue on and see more of that. Verse 2. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute would, uh, or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Then Absalom did to all of Israel, or thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom would stand on the road leading up to the city gate. Now the city gate in those days was like city hall. It was the court. It was the place where you came to have your case, your, your legal situation heard by the king. And now in each district in Israel, there were people who were appointed to hear these cases. And so these ones who were coming up to Jerusalem, this would be kind of like the high court, right? Or even the court of appeals. So people who were coming here, they had uh, more serious cases. And they would come from faraway places. And so Absalom had a great eye for picking out people who were distressed or disgruntled or upset for some reason. And by the way, divisive people always have a good eye for that. And, and he, when he saw them, he would say, hey, brother, you look upset. Tell me what's going on. I, I'll listen to you. And of course, the person would be very flattered that the prince of Israel was willing to listen to their case. And every time, no matter what they said, Absalom would say, oh, you know what? That's a good case. You've got a great point. You know, you deserve justice. But you know what? I'm sorry, but there's just no one here to hear your case. And remember, he's saying this before they ever reach the city gate. He's not even letting them get to the city gate. So there very well might have been people there to hear the case. Right? And he says, oh, you know, you know, bummer, but there's just no one here to hear your case. Man, and that is sad, right? You traveled all this way, and they got nobody to listen to you. You know, man, uh, that's not right. But you know, if I were in charge around here, things would be different. That would never happen if I was in charge around here. I'll make, I would make sure that everybody got listened to. I would make sure that people got justice like you, brother. I would fight for you to get justice. I would be available to the people. Not like my father David, you know, up in his ivory tower, not talking to anybody. You know, I mean, I don't want to say bad things about him. He's a good guy and all. But, you know, there are just some things about him. And, you know, maybe I would change those things if I were in charge. And you know what? It's not just me. There's a lot of people around here who think the exact same way. You see what Absalom's doing is something that's been done time and time again. It's nothing new. It happens even in our day all the time. People sowing seeds of dissension. He's stirring up dissatisfaction in the hearts of the people towards David, towards the system. People would come to him upset and they would leave even more upset. The Bible talks in several places, by the way, about how we should view divisive people. Here's one example in, in Titus 3, verse 10. It says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Right? It really says, don't have anything to do with divisive people. There's nothing good happening here. Verse 7. 
At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Then the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. After four years of sowing seeds of dissension and division, Absalom has effectively stolen the hearts of the people of Israel. Everybody loves him. I mean, he's young, he's charismatic, David's not as young as he used to be, and I mean, come on, who wants to follow some boring old guy, right? I mean, here, here's Absalom, he's young, he, he really listens to people, right? He, he sees our problems, he feels our pain, right? Absalom is the prototype of the modern politician. He has got everybody on his side, but he hasn't actually done anything, right? He's just all flash. He's all promises. He's handshakes. He smiles. But he hasn't actually done anything. But he's winning the popularity contest because he's hitting the streets and shaking the hands and lending a sympathetic ear. Absalom realizes now that after four years, the stage is set and it's time for him to make his move. And so he asks David for permission to go down to Hebron to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Now that's a bit weird, right? I mean, he's a grown man. Why does he need to ask permission to go make a sacrifice in Hebron? Well, there's a very good reason. And that is because Hebron is the former capital of Israel. Before David moved the capital to Jerusalem, the capital used to be in Hebron, so it was a very symbolic place in the uh, minds of the people of Israel. And it would have raised a lot of red flags with Absalom growing hugely in popularity if he would take a trip to Hebron. And so he goes and he asks David, you know, for permission. He's tricky. He says, hey, you know, I'm just going there. I want to worship the Lord, going to Hebron. You know, is that okay with you? Of course, that's not the real reason he's going to Hebron. But, but this way, at least he can claim that David knew about it and David gave him a blessing as he went. Verse 10. Here's the real reason he went to Hebron. Absalom sent messengers, secret messengers, throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. When a with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifice, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the People with Absalom kept increasing. Absalom gets these 200 guys, like he invites them, hey, come up to Hebron with me, we're going to make a sacrifice. They don't realize that that's not why he's going to Hebron. They're innocent in this, but why is he doing it? So that when the news gets reported, the news will be reported, oh yeah, and there's a couple hundred guys there with him who are making him king. It's a movement. This isn't a movement. This is something that he orchestrated, something that he organized. And, and he sets all these secret messengers to announce, hey, did you know that uh, he's now king in Hebron? He orchestrated this whole thing on his own. It's an uprising. It's a rebellion. But it's really just started all by him. And to bolster his claim to be king, Absalom gets prominent people on his side, the greatest of whom is Ahithophel, one of David's most trusted and beloved counselors. Verse 13. The messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. David's own son, this son who he loved and who he showed so much kindness to, probably more kindness than, than he should have to this son. 
And now this son, in return for that love and kindness, look at what he does. He turns against David, and he turns everybody else against David. He betrays him, and he's trying to overthrow him as king and kick him out. And the people of Israel, who once loved David, do you remember they used to sing songs about David? Now the people are turning against him as well. David's close friends, his advisors, everybody is turning against him. And the question is, how will David react to this? Will he fight for his kingdom? Will he fight to defend his name, his honor? Will he fight or will he try to crush the rebellion and shut it down? Well, let's look at how David responds. Verse 14, Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. David says, we're going to run away. That's how we're going to respond. We're going to flee. We're going to get out of Jerusalem. Why? Because David knows that Absalom is coming for him. And he knows, he knows his son well enough that not only does he know that his son is capable of murdering him and killing him, he knows that actually his son is probably on his way to do that very thing at this moment. And he says, I don't want Jerusalem, this city I love, I don't want it to become a battleground. He'll burn the city to the ground. He said, no, I'd rather save the city, save the people from war. This is about me, it's not about them. I'm willing to remove myself in order to save the city. He doesn't want Jerusalem to become a battleground. I want you to see David's sacrificial attitude in this. He is willing to give himself up. He's willing to sacrifice himself in order to save the city. He's willing to give up his right even to be king in order to save the nation. And I'll tell you what, that is the heart of a true king. That is the heart of a man after God's own heart. In the next couple of verses, verse 18 through 22, we see a very interesting thing happen. Uh, we see that a group of foreigners come and swear allegiance to David. And there's this guy named Ittai the Gittite, which is a fun name to say, by the way. He's kind of their leader. And all of Israel has turned away at this point, except now that Israel has turned their back on David, now this group of foreigners comes and they say, David, we are loyal to you. And David says, I don't think you guys should be loyal to me. I mean, come on, you guys should just go and not have to take part in this. This is about me, it's not about you. But they say, no, David, we are with you heart and soul and we will be with you forever. Do you know why these foreigners wanted to be with David? We read in that section that these foreigners were exiles, meaning that they had come to Israel and David, as the king, had given them refuge. And they were so thankful that David had done this for them and taken them in and given them refuge that now when everybody else is turning away, they are the ones who remain loyal and dedicated to David. That, that's really how it is, by the way. When you really understand that God has saved you, that God rescued you and redeemed you, you cannot help but say, my heart and my life belong to you forever. I don't care what the crowds do. I don't care what everybody else is doing. My loyalty and my allegiance, they lie with you forever because you saved me. You rescued me. And that is truly the response of a heart that has been truly touched by grace, a heart that knows that it has been saved. Verse 23. We see all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed 
on towards the wilderness. Now you kind of have to know the uh, layout of the city of Jerusalem to really appreciate what's happening here. Jerusalem sits up on a hill. And so as you leave Jerusalem, you go into this valley towards what we're going to see is the Mount of Olives, another hill there opposite Jerusalem. So they leave the city of Jerusalem. They go down the hill into the valley where the brook Kidron is. And they are now going to go up the other side, uh, the other hill opposite Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. And so we read that David here, he's leaving the city and they're weeping aloud. In verse 24, Abiathar came to him the priest, and behold, Zadok also came with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to him what seems good to him. Did you catch that? That's really key, and I want to talk about that more. David says, you know, I don't want to use the Ark of the Covenant as a bargaining chip to really assert myself as king. I don't want to use it for leverage. He says, just take it back. The peop- it needs to be amongst the people. And you know what? If God wants me to be king, then he will make me king. And if God, maybe, you know what? Maybe this is God's way of removing me from being king. That's really what he's saying. He's open to that. He's saying, maybe God is done using me in this capacity. Maybe this is something that the Lord is allowing in order to get me off the throne. And if it is, well then, so be it. His will be done, not my will. And that's incredible that David could say something like that. Let's go on and and we're going to finish in verse 31. We're going to go from 29 to 31. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem And they remained there, but David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. David leaves the city of Jerusalem, weeping as he goes, incredibly hurt, feeling this deep pain of betrayal by the ones that he loves, by the ones to whom he has shown only kindness. Why is he going up the Mount of Olives? We read in the very first part of verse 32 that at the summit of the Mount of Olives was the place where God was worshipped. Do you see that? Why do you want to go this way, David? Why not follow the valley out of the mountains? No, he says, I want to go up the Mount of Olives to the place where God is worshipped. That is very significant. In the time of betrayal, in the time of difficulty and great pain, we see David in tears making his way up to the place of worship. Let me ask you, where do you go in those times? In those times of sorrow, in those times of difficulty, in those times of pain and disillusionment, where do you go? David, the man after God's own heart, he went in tears to the place of worship. I was at a funeral last weekend. That's why I wasn't here with you. And uh, the funeral was for a dear friend of mine who was part of our ministry in Hungary for several years. And, uh, and he passed away. He was, uh, you know, it was untimely. He was young. But he was a great believer, and he had lived his life unto the Lord. You know, it was one of those ones where you look at and you say, if I could be like him, I'd be doing something right. He ran the race. He won the race. In that sense, it was good. But what really struck me was that during the funeral, uh, there were several times, I mean, the funeral was really, it was like all day. It was like three parts, you know. We did a viewing and graveside service, then we did a, a memorial service. 
And, in, and at various times, there were hymns sung and there were worship songs sung. And what was very incredible to me and struck me, left a real deep mark in me, is that uh, our friend's wife, our other friend, right? Her name is Kitty. She had just lost her husband. And yet she raised her hands in worship at the funeral of her husband, finding hope and comfort in the promise of the gospel. Let me tell you what, there's some substance in that. When you're able to do that, you understand that the gospel truly is hope. You understand that in the gospel we can have life that is truly life. That's not trite. That's not trying to show off. When you're doing that in the time of your deepest trial at your husband's funeral there's some substance behind it and it was just so profound it was so powerful to see this woman coming to the place of worship even in the midst of her greatest trial you know it's been said that people are like sponges right you really find out what's on the inside of us when we get squeezed and here's David facing the greatest trial of his life he's he's coming through tears to the place of worship with the attitude of complete submission to the will of God He's saying, Lord, you made me king. I didn't make myself king. I never asserted that, Lord. You made me king. And if you want me to remain king, then I will trust you to do that. But Lord, if you don't want me to be king anymore, if you want Absalom to be king instead, if you want somebody else to be king, I'm okay with that. I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of trust in the Lord to be able to say something like that. And here's what's really interesting about David. This is what's really striking about him. This is part of what made David so special. It's part of what made him so great. It's what made him a man after God's own heart and where we can learn a lot from him. See, here's the deal. David didn't have to be king. You know that? He didn't have to be king. If he was king, he was okay with that. But he was also okay with not being king. You know, the books of First and Second Samuel have often been referred to as the tale of three kings, right? Saul, David, and Absalom. But what sets David apart from Saul and Absalom is one key factor, and that's this, that David was okay with not being king. He didn't have to be king. Saul and Absalom, they had this drive inside of them, this push that they had to be king and nothing less, and they were willing to do anything, and they would take down anyone who stood in their way. Saul, he exhausted all the resources of Israel, you know, in order to try to get to David so that he could have a few more years of power. Absalom, he betrays his father. Now he's even willing to kill his own father in order to be king. What would drive a person to, be, to do something like that? Well, it's a drive that's in all of us, actually. You know, the reason is because most people, and perhaps even you, consider this. Most people are striving for significance, desperately striving in their life. You could call it the work beneath our work. What is, what is it that we're really working for when we're working, right? Because we're all working, but some of us overwork. And it's not because we need more money or because we have to overwork. It's because there's this work beneath our work. There's this drive. There's something that we're trying to attain. We're desperately trying to prove that our life is worth something, that we are somebody, that our life has meaning, that it really counts. You know, some people try really hard to be the world's best parents, like perfect parents, right? The world's greatest dad. But, but it's not always because they truly love raising children, although I'm sure they do love their kids, but there's something else. There's work beneath the work. They're desperately trying to prove that they are somebody, that they are significant, that they mean something. And I believe, you know, in our culture, there is this underlying fear of failure. I feel it. There's underlying fear of failure. There's this fear of insignificance. That if I mess this up, then my life will have been a waste. I was listening to 
podcast about the Broncos this week, and uh, one of the players from the Broncos said at the end of the season, well, the whole thing was just a waste. You know, think about that. Really, it was just a waste? There's this fear of failure, this fear of insignificance that drives people, that motivates them. They're motivated by this fear. And you can see that in the lives of Saul and Absalom. Saul has to be king. He must be king. He's gotten a taste of it, and now he cannot have anything less. It's not okay for him to be the guy who used to be king, the former king. No, his identity, his significance is wrapped up in being king, and he cannot handle being anything less. Absalom, he was the prince, but you know, nobody ever remembers who the princes were. They only remember who the kings are. And so Absalom says, well, in order for my life to be truly significant, I have to be king. But David, David's different. And David, he finds his identity in who he is in the Lord. And that makes all the difference. David, if you would have asked him, who are you? I don't believe he even would have mentioned that he was king. David viewed himself, who are you, David? He would have said, I am a beloved sheep in God's flock. I am a servant of the Lord. I am a worshiper of God. I am a friend of God. No matter what job or position he held, no matter what successes or failures he had in life, his identity didn't change because it was was found in God. If God wanted him to tend sheep or, or fight as a soldier or lead the nation, his sense of who he was remained the same. If God wanted him to be king, well then great. But he didn't need to be king because it didn't define who he was. It was just something that he did. Paul the Apostle talks about this very thing in Philippians chapter 3. I love what Paul says here in Philippians 3 verse 8. He says, Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's the big phrase. I love this. And be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ from righteousness, or the righteousness that, from God that depends on faith. That phrase, to be found in him, it speaks of finding your identity in Christ, and that is so powerful. Before Paul became a Christian, he found his identity in other things, and he tells us what those were in the verses right before that. He says in verse 4, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. These are the things in which Paul used to find his identity, the things which he believed gave him value and significance. You see, that was the work beneath his work. He wasn't really into Judaism for the sake of Judaism, just because he really loved Judaism. The reason he was so zealous about his religion was because he was trying to prove that he had a reason for his existence. But when he came to know Jesus Christ, he realized that all those things he had been doing to try and prove himself were a waste. He realized that he could finally and truly rest from the work beneath his work because God had given him an identity in Christ. An identity not based on what he had accomplished or done, but an identity that was based on what Christ had accomplished for him on the cross. And because of that, he could truly rest. The movie Chariots of Fire, it tells the story of two men who raced for Great Britain in the 1924 Olympics. One's name was Eric Little, the other man was Harold Abrahams. Eric Little was a Christian, in fact, he was a missionary in China. 
Both men were trying very hard to win the gold medals, but their motivations for running were very different, and that comes out there in the, in the story. The difference was that Abrams was running out of this need to try to prove himself. And because of that, Harold Abrams, you, you see this man who, he's a good runner, but it's almost like he hates running. It's almost like he hates competing. And one time he talks about why he has so much tension and fear and apprehension about racing in these races. And he says, the reason is because when that gun goes off, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Eric Little, on the other hand, he had a very different attitude about running. He even dropped out of a race, and this is a true story. He dropped out of a race that in which he was guaranteed almost to win the gold medal. It's a race he'd been training for because that race was on Sunday, and he got invited to preach at a church. And he said, yeah, I'll preach at the church. And he dropped out of the race in which he would have won the gold medal in order to preach at the church. You see, he didn't have to do it. He wasn't doing it to justify his existence. And at one point he talks about why he runs and his attitude about running. And it's so different than the other man's attitude. And he says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Don't you see how different that is? You see, Abrams was tired even when he was resting. Eric Little had rest even when he was exerting himself. Because Eric Little understood what the Paul, Paul the Apostle was talking about in Philippians chapter 3. To be found in Christ with an identity based not on what you do or what you accomplish, but based on who you are before God and what Christ accomplished for you through his life and death and resurrection. And when you understand that, when you really get that, you're able to rest. And you know what else? You're able to let work just be work. It doesn't have to justify your existence. You can actually just do it for the sake of doing it. You can be a parent just for the sake of being a parent. You can do everything. You're free. You see that? If you're found in him, you're truly free from the work beneath your work. You're, true, you're able to finally rest in Christ. It's only then that you can rest from the work beneath your work and stop trying to justify yourself through your own actions. But now I want you to turn our attention back to David for one last moment. And David, although he has rest in his soul over the will of God, he says, Lord, whatever you want, I'm okay with it, even if you don't want me to be king anymore. Although he has rest in his soul, he still has tears streaming down his face. Why? Well, because he feels the searing pain of betrayal. He feels the searing pain of, of hurt and rejection. Many years later, this same path out of the city of Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives, this same path, these same footsteps will be walked by another man. And that man, like David, would know what it's like to be the father of a prodigal son. Like David, he knew what it was like to be rejected and betrayed by the ones he loved. Like David, he also would shed tears as he stood on the Mount of Olives and looked over the city of Jerusalem. Like David, he too would sacrifice himself to save others. Like David, he too would pray, not my will, but the will of the Father be done. Like David, he too would suffer outside the gates of Jerusalem. Of course, I'm talking about the son of David and not Absalom the true and better son of David, Jesus Christ. He was rejected so that you can be accepted by God. He was lost so that you can be found in him with a righteousness that's not your own, but that comes through faith in him. He died bearing your sins upon himself so that through him you can have the life that is truly life. And he rose from the dead so that you can be resurrected to eternal life. 
The message of the gospel is that the world's greatest dad, your heavenly father, loved you even when you were a prodigal, even when you told him, I don't want a relationship with you, I only want what you can give me. Even when you didn't love him, he loved you so much that he came to this world and lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you should have died on your behalf in order to save you, in order to give you a new identity in him. And if you will come to him like the prodigal son returned to his father, he stands like the father in that story ready to embrace you, not just embrace you, but run to you and embrace you and kiss you and receive you not as a servant, but as a son, as a daughter of the king. That's the gospel, amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the glorious truth of your gospel. Lord, may it just impact our hearts in every aspect of our lives, Lord. May it define the reasons why we do the things that we do, Lord. And may we rest from the work beneath our work. And may we rest in an identity that comes not from our accomplishments, but an identity that comes from what you have accomplished for us on the cross. Thank you so much for that, Lord. We pray that we would go in the knowledge of that. And like those men, those foreigners who received exile in Israel and remained faithful to David for the rest of their lives, Lord, may we also see the grace that you've given us and may we be faithful to you for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.